I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. These midweek extra episodes are a chance for us to stretch our legs a bit. Sometimes we go deep with a particular topic or explore an idea or event that catches our attention for one reason or another. And today I have on the program a story about the collision of religion and politics that ended badly for both. In 2018, a Southern Baptist pastor named Mark Harris ran for the United States Congress in North Carolina. Harris had been a pastor of one of the most prominent churches in Charlotte, and he had been a strong voice for Christian ideas in the public square. But what happened next is the stuff of Greek tragedy. A close election, allegations of voter fraud, and hearings into those allegations that featured Mark Harris' own son, an attorney, providing damaging testimony against his father. A new book about what has been called the greatest electoral fraud of the 21st century so far lays out the details and is a warning to Christian leaders who want to get involved in politics. Now, that warning is not to stay out of politics, but to enter and engage the process carefully. Nick Oxner is my guest today, and he's the co-author of that book. Oxner is the chief investigative reporter for WBTV, the CBS television affiliate in Charlotte. Well, Nick Oxner, uh, welcome to the program. I really enjoyed your book, The Vote Collectors. And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting to me because, of course, you're writing about North Carolina. I live here in Charlotte. Uh, I know Mark Harris. Uh, I know Pat McCrory, the former governor of North Carolina and mayor of Charlotte. A lot of folks in the book I knew. And I thought I knew the story. Uh but you so you and your co-author, Michael Graff, really unpacked a lot of this story that I didn't know about. But for those that don't know anything about this story, why don't we just start with who is Mark Harris and, you know, what was significant about uh, this particular election? Yeah, well, I'll start with the back half of your question first. This election, uh, the race for the 9th Congressional District in North Carolina in 2018, is significant. We call in our book, The Greatest History of Election Fraud, Electoral Fraud, because it was the first and, to my knowledge, only known case of a congressional race being thrown out because of fraud, um, because of election fraud. So that race uh, featured Republican Mark Harris versus Democrat Dan McCready. Um, It is the allegations that led to the race being thrown out really stemmed from Uh, a guy working for Mark Harris, the Republican in that race. Harris, of course, is a longtime Baptist preacher, was president of the North Carolina Baptist Association, um, left the ministry to run for political office, but actually now he's back pastoring a church, uh, I think, just over the border in Iredell County, still here in North Carolina. 
Well, and I should say in a spirit of full disclosure, I mentioned that I knew Mark Harris, but I, I mean, it was more than a passing acquaintance. I was friends with Mark. Uh, we we would, you know, have lunch together every few months or so. In fact, whenever he was thinking about running uh, for Congress, he, um, you know, I was one of the guys he called and we uh, had lunch together at Pinky's West Side Grill. You may, I know, you probably know where that is. A lot of our listeners may not. And you were covering this because you work for WBTV, which is here in Charlotte. And, um, I, you know, of course, um, that's sort of my go-to station. It's the CBS affiliate, so I, I, I see you on TV a good bit, and and sort of again know of your coverage of this um, this race. But a lot, again, a lot of it was new to me. And, I, you know, th- the reason that I'm interested in this race here at Ministry Watch, Nick, and, and you and I talked a little bit about this before we hit the record button, was that, you know, I'm always interested in this interface between faith and politics, especially when uh, that story ends up in faith being corrupted by politics. And and I'll have to say, I think Mark Harris, because I, like I say, I know Mark, he was a friend. I think he got into this race with all of the absolute best intentions. Uh, he wanted to serve. He, he um, was involved in some as a pastor in some important issues here in North Carolina related to same-sex marriage and other issues. And I think he saw this as a logical next step for him. Um, what? How, why do you think he went astray? How do you think he went astray? How could a man with such sort of impeccable, you know, community and faith credentials get led astray? Is this a classic example of, you know, politics um, corrupts everything it touches? Well, I always agree with that statement as an investigative reporter. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. You know, I think if you if you read the book, and we've had a lot of people as we were working on the book since we've released the book say, you know, we want to know how high up this this conspiracy went to steal this election, you know, past Harris, what have you. You know, I don't actually there's no evidence to suggest that Mark Harris actually knew that the fraudulent behavior and, and questionable activity that was going on by people paid on his campaign. He didn't act, I don't think he actually knew that that was going on. What is clear is that he had warning signs that warned him not to get in bed with the with the guy he ultimately hired, a guy named McCray Dallas, who's a Bladen County political operative, longtime Bladen County political operative, who it should be said, all the local folks in Bladen County told Mark Harris, this is the guy you want. This is your guy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, Mark Harris's son, John, warned him and said, this is not the guy you want. You should have real questions about this. And what is certainly clear from their email communication traffic, from their testimony, from what happened, what we now know happened, is that Harris put his belief in the local folks telling him, here's the guy that can get you to win, because that's how it's pitched, is if you hire McCray Dallas, you're going to win a seat in Congress, and ignored the warnings that he got from his son. Well, and, you know, there's reasons uh, to understand why he did believe the people of Bladen County, because, you know, Bladen County was a poor, is a poor rural county in North Carolina. This is one of those weird districts here in North Carolina. We got a number of them that go from, you know, the urban areas of Charlotte 
uh, into the you know deep rural parts of North Carolina. And a part of the message that Mark Harris was taking to the people of the 9th District was that I don't come from the Ivory Tower. I do not come from downtown Charlotte. Uh, his opponent uh, was uh, somebody that had made millions. He was a successful entrepreneur. He was uh, from Charlotte. Not that Mark wasn't from Charlotte. He, of course, you know, pastored First Baptist of Charlotte. But so it, it's under it's easy to understand why, you know, Mark would pay attention. Mark Harris would pay attention to the people of Bladen County. But as you say, there were tons of warning signs about McCray Dallas. I mean, he'd be, he'd had run-ins with the law. Uh, he was, um, you know, kind of known as being somebody that was a gun for hire. He was not, um, you know, somebody that <laughs> he you could trust him to do things for money, but you could not necessarily trust him to do the right things for money. Well, and and, and again, it, it should be pointed out first, both that, that Mark Harris ran against multimillionaires in both the primary against sitting Congressman Robert Pittenger, who he beat, and then Dan McCready, right? Both of them from Charlotte, both of them very wealthy individuals. Um, and, and you're absolutely correct that Harris... Um, you know, wanted to go to Congress, thought he could make a change, was bothered by what he'd seen. And I, I agree with you that, you know, at least in part, he was motivated by by good intentions, right? I also think it's pretty clear he really wanted to be a member of Congress as well. Um, and, and uh, you know, again, he, I think it is probably fair to say that he put too much trust and faith in the local folks in Bladen County. But we should also remind people Harris first got linked up with McCray Dallas at the suggestion of a judge who ran the North Carolina administrative office of the courts, the state court system, said to Harris, look, if you run again, you need to hire McCray and then set him up at this meeting with the county Republican chairman and the county commission and the sheriff. And they all sat around and said, McCray is your guy. Yeah. But, you know, again, it was couched as if you want if you run and you want to win, you got to hire this guy. And so he did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the one another dimension of this story that um, I, I know we're skipping around a little bit, Nick, and I apologize for that, because um, your your book is uh, is robust with all kinds of history and background of Bladen County and the history of North Carolina and a lot of stuff about race and, and how race plays an important role in the politics of North Carolina even today. And so I, I don't want to act like or pretend like that stuff's not in the book and that it is not important, but we <laughs> Let's just stipulate for the record, go read the book. It's a really a fascinating read. But for for now, I, I, I want to skip forward because so, you know, Mark Harris hires McCray Dallas there. The election takes place. Uh, it's immediately, you know, th- th- there's immediate controversy related to the election. There's an investigation. It sort of climaxes with this moment in which Mark Harris's son, John, essentially, effectively, um, testifies against his own father in this case. Can you describe that scene and kind of what led up to that scene? Yeah. So we should start by saying that John Harris is an attorney. He didn't follow the family business going into ministry. He went into the law. Which, interestingly, Mark thought he was going to law school, too, until he right, right. Church, yeah. had a church and, and wound up as a pastor. Um, but so his son, John, is a lawyer. Um, by the time he was testifying, he was actually a lawyer in the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of North Carolina. 
And uh, John had spent a lot of time providing strategic advice to his parents, even though Mark was the candidate. Mark's wife, Beth, is just as involved in the campaign. It's very clear and is very much a numbers gal and, and, and strategy. And so the three of them spent a lot of time, both in his 2016 primary campaign, where he fell just short of, I think, maybe 300 votes short of beating Robert Pittenger, and then in the 2018 campaign as well. Um, and so John had all of these emails, and because he's a lawyer, I think, and had an understanding of the obligations under the law, he thought those emails had been produced to the State Board of Elections. And so he had contacted the State Board saying, hey, I know you got all my emails. Am I going to be a witness? And I'm paraphrasing some of this here, but, and they said, what emails are you talking about? <laughs> and it's because his dad's lawyers hadn't given the emails to the state board. So he says, well, here you go. I'm going to give them. And he told the lawyers, I'm going to give them. And, um, and that led to a series of events that culminated with him testifying. And again, when we talk about Mark Harris had maintained, he did it in an interview with me, I was the first person he spoke to um, after after the investigation started. I was his first interview. He said it to me. He said in a series of other interviews that he had no warning signs, no red flags about McRae Downs. And here comes his son with a stack of emails, every one of them, a red flag that he's raising higher and higher. Um, and it was damning. It was damning testimony. Um, and his son is very articulate, very well-spoken, very presentable, just as, I mean, just as much so as his father, the, the pastor, um, and very believable. And so that set in state, uh, set in motion, uh, the, really the downfall and the undoing of this election. Yeah. Well, and the, the actual court testimony was dramatic. I mean, Mark Harris was essentially in tears while his son was, uh, testifying i i'm sure his the you know the, it's a close family i mean they loved each other they love each other and uh i'm sure it must have been hard for john but as you said uh it's it's one of the great ironies of of this whole story is that it is the fact that mark and beth were such great parents they raised a son of high moral character of great integrity who could do really nothing other than what he ended up doing. I mean, would you agree with that, Nick? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, if you are any parent, much less a pastor, right. And you, you watch what has happened and you are driving home from that night. They actually, after John testified in this very emotional, very emotional, emotionally draining day, recall that Mark Harris was still in recovery from some serious medical conditions uh, they actually had to drive from Raleigh to Charlotte overnight so that he could get some medical treatment and turn around and drive right back early in the morning so he could go so Mark could testify the next day. Um, and and Mark's lawyer told me that night that he texted his son and, and that he was proud of. And I have no reason to doubt that happened. I do believe that happened. Um, and so, yeah, I imagine there is both a sense of pride and dread uh, on that drive home, that long drive home back to Raleigh, or back to Charlotte from Raleigh that night. Yeah, well, it was a dramatic scene and, and an amazing story. And as you say, uh, the the only the, the the net result was that it was the, it's the only congressional race that has ever been completely overturned. So uh, let's um, th so the aftermath of that was that uh, there was another election. And um, and it ended up Dan McCready, who was the Democratic opponent, uh, didn't win. Mark Harris didn't win. He wasn't in it. They, the, the Republican Party uh, did a switcheroo. They put Dan Bishop uh, in, who was a local, local politician, and um, 
in in Mark Harris's place. And now today, uh, Dan Bishop is a member of Congress from the Ninth District of North Carolina. That's kind of the the bottom line here. One of the bottom lines. What are some of the other bottom lines, Nick? I mean, what what else would you say are some of the lessons of this particular race, this particular situation case? The takeaway for me really is what happened in 2018 didn't have to happen. And it did so. It took place because our systems that we rely on to keep things in order didn't work like they were supposed to. In this case, we're talking about the legal system, uh, mostly in the election system. I mean, there was evidence of Funny bit. I think a lot of people, as I've done interviews for the book, have, have used the word shenanigans. I really, that's a great word. There is evidence of election shenanigans going on in Bladen County for years and maybe even a decade leading up to the 2018 election. And they were never acted upon in a decisive way. Um, and they, in, in, in the two years between 2016 and 2018, there was a big stack of evidence presented to the U.S. attorney and to district attorneys. And nothing was ever done to address any of that real evidence of actual voter fraud, right? We hear all these now in 2020 and post-2020, we hear all these claims of voter fraud. Let me tell you about some actual voter fraud, but there was real evidence of election fraud happening in Bladen County, and no one did anything about it. And it reminds me, and it speaks to me, the importance of our institutions and the people that we trust to guard those institutions and to operate those institutions, whether that's within the law, within politics, within churches, wherever they are. The institutions have to work. And when they don't work, we see this catastrophic failure, which in this case resulted in a congressional race being thrown out. Yeah. I want to pivot just a bit in our conversation, uh, Nick. Uh, we can come back to the story uh, as, as you prefer and as you would like and, and maybe to wrap things up. But I want to talk a little about the process of writing the book, because, uh, you know, uh, as we've already talked about over and over again, even though the Ninth District uh, goes from Charlotte, you know, way down towards the coast of North Carolina, including through Bladen County. There's, um, you know, there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of diversity, shall we say, economic diversity, um, racial diversity, uh, socioeconomic, um, you know, not not just economic diversity, but but I would say cultural diversity as well. But you're from that part of the world. Uh, I think it might be fair to say, and and uh, you may not say this about yourself, but I don't think very many people other than you could have gotten this story and told this story because you knew how to you knew you knew how to move around Bladen County. I mean, I could imagine you know a lot of a lot of reporters from Charlotte uh, going to Bladen County and people saying, uh, "Son, you ain't from around here, and I don't believe we want to talk to you." But that's not the way they treated you, right? That's exa- that's exactly right. I mean, and look, I'm from yeah. I've lived almost eight years in Charlotte. I'm an out of towner, right? By any other means, except I'm from Hope Mills, North Carolina. Uh, it's about thirty minutes from Bladen County, as I like to joke, the closest point of civilization you can get to Bladen County. And, and I grew up there um, my whole childhood. Uh, and and I still have a my personal cell phone is a nine one zero area code. Don't think I didn't use that to make some phone calls uh, <laughs> instead of my cell phone. But I also just understand the people because I grew up around them. And more importantly, maybe for this story, is I'd heard my entire childhood stories and speculation and accusations of, of election shenanigans. Um, and I knew that what happened, what did or didn't happen in 2018 was not isolated. 
And that I thought was an important story to tell because when I stepped foot in Williamson County, I wasn't the first one to the story. I actually was trying not to do the story because I didn't think it really amount to anything because I'd heard it, you know, so for decades. And we'd seen it in 2016, some accusations in Bladen County that didn't go anywhere. Um, and so, you know, the first day when I pulled into McCray Dallas's driveway, which was the very first stop I made in Bladen County to report this story, it turns out, I shook out, you know, stuck out my hand and I shook his hand and I said, I don't know what you have or haven't done, but I know you're not the only person who's done it. And I wouldn't have known to say that. And I believe it. And I think it's actually proven to be true, but I wouldn't have known to say that had I not grown up around it and, and, and done that. Um, it's also true that, you know, I just, I'm relaxed down there because it feels like home in the sand hills, you know, with folks that I um, grew up around being. And, and my wife will tell you, and, and my photographer that I worked with down there, who I've worked with almost every day for a long time now, um, and I normally sound like this, but when I get talking to people like Cray Dallas in Bladen County, my, my hope mills comes out a little bit. No, I understand that. Yeah, I was raised in the South, and sometimes whenever I travel, people say, you don't sound like you're from the South, and I say, well, I show can when I need to, you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I mean, you know, and and do you eat barbecue? Do you know what barbecue is? Do you eat it? Do you drink sweet tea? I mean, these are just things that, you know, I remember when I stepped foot in Bladen County, there were people literally from all over the world, from New York, from L.A., from D.C., from London. I mean, that were descending there. And so to have someone with a 910 area code who grew up 30 minutes away, I mean, that was that was a big deal. And you grew up there because your dad was in the military. Is that that's that accurate? Yeah. You know, and, and Nick, this kind of wanders the field a little bit. And if you don't want to talk about it, I understand. But your 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 dad served in the military and, in fact, was killed in combat. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yep, in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. And now you're first of all, thank you for his service and sorry for and, and for your sacrifice and sorry for your loss. And your wife now is serving in the military, too, as as. Is that accurate? Yes. As we record this, she's at Fort Benning in officer candidate school. Yeah. Uh, she decided at 31 to enlist in the Army Reserves. So th- turned 32 in basic training, which uh, is quite a thing when you're surrounded by 18. I bet. I bet. Well, and I knew that in part because she was a reporter here in Charlotte as well. Is that how y'all met? Is that, uh, is that- We met uh, at competing TV stations in Lubbock, Texas on our first jobs and hated each other. And so naturally we got married. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I would bet that those bona fides, if you will, probably didn't hurt you in Bladen County whenever you were reporting this story. Is that- I don't think they did. I don't think they did. And I, you know, you got to use uh, I'm an investigative reporter, right? So I investigate things. That either means that I'm working on long-term stories where I'm trying to get people to tell me things they shouldn't or might embarrass other people. Or like in the Bladen County case in the 2018 election scandal, I'm kind of going, diving into a story to try to find what I can. And so generally speaking, my, you know, reporters have different styles, but my, my style primarily is what do I have in my advantage? How can I use to work this? Right. And, and get in because we're trying to get into something and uncover some stuff. What when I called McRae Dallas for the first time, no one had spoken with him publicly, you know, in two years. He'd done an interview with Zoe Chase for This American Life in 2016. But that was the last time he'd spoken. To anyone, and everyone wanted to talk to him. and He wasn't talking to anybody. And so I called a friend of a friend of a friend who is the one who put me in touch with McRae. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I'm working those angles as a as a reporter, uh, one, because I want exclusive or you know whatever right I mean, reporters are like children we all want the best and shiniest and, and newest thing um, but two 
I also, again, knew that there was another side of the story that needed to be, well, at least one more, maybe more, uh, that needed to be told. And I wanted to tell that story. I didn't think it, any of it had been presented yet. Yeah. Well, um, Nick, we need to bring our conversation to a close. And, and let's just stipulate for the record that my audience here at Ministry Watch, which is, you know, primarily an evangelical Christian audience that is con- you know, concerned about, you know, waste, fraud and abuse within the church. Um, you know, I, I think that one of the lessons that that um, has emerged uh, for me, at least, as I've done reporting on sort of in my little lane, in my beat, is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's an old lesson. Money uh, can corrupt. Sometimes, um, you know, we Christians who, you know, we say wanna have, we want to have a positive impact on the culture, we forget that the end does not justify the means. And um, um, I mean, are these valid lessons to take away from this this particular story? Well, all of that. I mean, all of what you said. And I think it's important. I think the work that you and I do, right, we serve as watchdogs and as accountability because we all need that. We all need people holding us accountable. in life. Um, And for a lot of people, their pastors are holding them accountable, but someone's got to hold the pastor to account as well. Right. Or and certainly a politician. Um, And because people are all human, all of us, no matter who we are. And I think what happened in 2018 is the great tale of, you know, people wanting to win, of too much money being involved in a place where people are too desperate to know any better or think twice about what they're being asked to do, all of those things. And it came together in this kind of fantastical way to explode into what we saw play out. Well, it sure did. And you, and you and your co-author, Michael Graff, did a great job of telling the story. I really uh, found the book interesting, fascinating. I was, uh, uh, in some some cases, shaking my head as I read the book, in some cases, laughing out loud as I read the book, because, you know, for, for all kinds of reasons. But, um, Nick, bottom line, thank you for the book. Thanks for being on the program today. Really appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening in on my interview with Nick Oxner. He and Michael Graff are the co-authors of the new book, The Vote Collectors, the true story of the scamsters, politicians, and preachers behind the nation's greatest electoral fraud. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Ben Warwick. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Emily Kern, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and until next time... May God bless you.